Thanks, Tony. Yes, uh, as, as you've already heard, I'll be briefly introducing this uh, short series of four sermons on Matthew 5. This morning, it's as much teaching as preaching this morning. I hope that's okay. The first thing I want you to notice this morning is that it's a sermon by Jesus on a mount. Now, that may be obvious, but it is significant because Matthew has a thing about mountains. When Jesus is tra transfigured and Moses and Elijah appear, it's only Matthew who says to us that he's on a high mountain, meaning its significance. And incidentally, both Moses and Elijah had experiences of God on mountains too. And it's only Matthew, of course, who tells us uh, about the Great Commission. At the end of his gospel, where he instructs the 11 male disciples to go to a, a mountain where he meets them and commissions them. So you see, the mention of mountains is meant to take us back to that crucial occasion in Jewish history when Moses is given the Torah, the law, by God on a mountain. And Matthew is signalling to us that Jesus is in this setting, the new Moses, giving the new law of God. We'll see that later in chapter 5, when several times Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, well, what is it that they have heard it said, this crowd? You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, and so on and so forth. Jesus is quoting from the Ten Commandments and other parts of the law that God's given. And then Jesus gives his own teaching on the law God gives for life. So the fact that this is a sermon on a mount is significant. Jesus is not up there simply to be heard and seen better by the crowd. And so this morning, as we listen to Jesus' teaching, let's resolve to open our minds and hearts to receive uh, the Sermon on the Mount as the words of the Son of God, talking about the laws for living from God to us. Secondly, I want to just ask very quickly, who is the Sermon on the Mount for? If you look at verse 1, it reads like this. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up a mountainside and sat down. The disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. So it's certainly teaching for the disciples, but it isn't absolutely clear whether the crowd are included at this point. And some writers have suggested that Jesus goes up the mountain to escape the crowds and all this wonderful teaching is given to the disciples who were with him at the time. Whereas others suggest that he goes up the mountain uh, to address the crowds who follow him up there and the disciples gather round, if you like, to create an inner ring round Jesus. Certainly, most art and movie renditions of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, even if you notice, and if you haven't noticed later, our mosaic image of, the, of this event, even Monty Python suggests that there are lots of people listening to Jesus. Now, why is this worth mentioning? Because sometimes people have suggested that Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is only applicable to those who claim to be deeply committed Christians, with the consequence that anybody else just doesn't have to take any notice of it whatsoever. Now, I'm not one of them. I think that this teaching is intended for everyone. It's not for the special few, but for the ordinary many, if I can put it like that.
Like the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount declares God's intentions and desires for how the whole human race might best live and live together. And if so, then that includes you and me, wherever you are and whoever you are. So, pause. As we go through these four weeks together, I ask you to consciously invite God to speak to you and change you as God wants through these words of Jesus, God's son. We often have a, a saying that we, we study the scriptures. Uh, in these four weeks, let's let the scriptures study us. And then thirdly, I want to say a little bit about Beatitudes, although Ali will pick up a lot of this uh, next week by looking perhaps at specific Beatitudes. Beatitudes are these blessed are statements that begin the Sermon on the Mount. Some years ago, before sat-navs and smartphones, uh, I was going to a meeting and I got hopelessly lost. And for once in my life, it wasn't my fault. The person who'd sent me the directions had got everything right except one thing. On the very first line of instructions, he told me to turn right on leaving the motorway when he actually meant turn left. It was just one tiny little word wrong, but everything after it made no sense whatsoever. And I think the same thing applies as we read the Beatitudes. A feeling of get this wrong and nothing else makes sense. A feeling that if I fail to understand this teaching, then I really fail to truly understand Jesus. So it is crucial teaching. I want you to notice this morning that the Beatitudes aren't about programs or principles. They're not even really about religion or doctrine as such. They're about people and people's characters, what they are like, Beatitude people. But then isn't that where God always begins, with, with people? Our God doesn't sit on a distant cloud and shout at us by megaphone from heaven. Ours is an incarnational faith because God takes on flesh and blood and comes to us here and now. I always find it interesting to see what photographs people have in their homes. In our house, you'll find pictures largely of our loved ones. I have my favourite photo of my late dad in my study. I have a picture of Helen tanned and smiling on the dressing table. And we have photos of the marriage day of our sons and daughters-in-law on the lounge wall. And I have to say, increasingly, we've got numbers of photos of our three young grandchildren. Well, almost everywhere, really. You will know what photos you have of who and where in your home. I think that if God had photos on the wall, they would be of Beatitude people. Why? Well, one reason is because Beatitude people look at the world through God's eyes. Jesus didn't invent Beatitudes. Blessed are, or happy are, or sometimes lucky are statements were quite common at the time of the New Testament. But those Beatitudes usually followed a pattern, and, and you'll recognise it. Blessed are the beautiful ones. Happy are the healthy ones. Lucky 
are the wealthy ones, and so on and so forth. So when Jesus begins, blessed are, I guess the crowd think they know what's coming. And what does come? Words which, whether they're spoken then or now, stand everything on its head. In a world where wealth equals success, Jesus says, blessed are the poor. In a world where pride and arrogance are respected, Jesus says, blessed are the meek. In a world where the number one rule is not getting caught, Jesus says, blessed are those who ache for what is right. In a world where coldness of heart and ruthlessness are valued by many, Jesus says, blessed are the meek. And in a world where living in the real world means accepting violence and war and hostility and killing and starvation, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. In a world where keeping quiet about injustice, keeping your head down, is regarded as sensible and wise, Jesus says, blessed are the persecuted ones. And in a world where respect and honour are sought after, Jesus says, and blessed are you, and rejoice when you're spat at and reviled and ridiculed and persecuted. I mean, just what kind of a sermon is this? I'll tell you. It's a sermon that judges us. And like all judgment, it reveals what we are. It reveals us as non-beatitude people. Why? Because deep down inside, we don't believe that Jesus' teaching is good news. You see, the gospel stands all human values on their head. But beatitude people know a really precious thing. And it's this, the Beatitudes aren't about what we think works. They're about how God works. And I ask you each day of this week, as Tony's just reminded you to look at this passage, perhaps as you look at the passage, add a prayer each day this week, a prayer that might go something like this. Lord, teach me more about how you want the world to work and about how you work, and shape me to be more profoundly a Beatitude person. Well, the last thing this morning I want you to note uh, about the Beatitude people is this. They seem to know that what God wants for them is the good and the best for them. When I meet them, Beatitude people have a richness of spirit that often reveals my own poverty of spirit. And when I recognise that in them, I recognise that they are blessed. And through being blessed, they are happy. Now, not happy in that I'm really happy that banana milkshakes are back on at McDonald's sense. I mean happy as a deep sense of well-being, of contentment an abiding happiness that doesn't depend on what happens. The Beatitude people I know are not seeking their own happiness. They seem to know that that's ultimately self-defeating. Instead, they fill their lives in ways that enrich life and enrich the lives of others. They don't get hung up about self-fulfillment. 
they strive to live out the Beatitudes and let self-fulfillment take care of itself. Well, one final, very brief thought. Who do the Beatitudes most remind you of? If you resolve to be more a Beatitude person, who do you start to increasingly become like? And the answer, of course, is the Lord Jesus. Because in the end, Beatitude people are Jesus people. Let's resolve this week to seek to become more like Jesus. Amen.